Okay, we're going to be going into Colossians in a a couple weeks, Uh, but I just wanted to, you know, we finished um, uh, the lead Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, and I wanted us to take a little break from uh, from exegeting the word there, and we're going to be talking about Thy word is truth. It's biblical inspiration. That's the Bible is God's written word. And inerrancy, the Bible is without error. We're going to talk about some of the difficulties that are going on uh, right now uh, within the American church. So uh, um, you could open up to Acts chapter 4. That'll be the first passage we'll be looking at. We'll be skipping around, but open up to Acts chapter 4. And what, what we do each week here is we pray that God anoints whoever is preaching, and today that's me, uh, that God, the Holy Spirit, would anoint them, empower them to proclaim God's truth so they would not lead anyone astray. And uh, that's because God's word is perfect. Uh, the, the, the preachers are not. So uh, let's go to the Lord and pray one more time that, that God anoints the preaching of the word. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I thank you, Lord, so much for the people that are here today. And um, I, uh, I just thank you that there's people still in this county, that, uh, that are hungry uh, for God's word. And I thank you, Lord, that the Trinity Bible Fellowship is not the only church in our county that still preaches God's truth. And so, uh, so we're just, we just grateful, Lord, but we want to hear the word of God proclaimed. Um, we don't want the faulty wisdom of man. We get enough fake news during the week. We don't need any on Sunday. And so I pray, Lord, that your, your spirit would anoint me and empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. And I pray that you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word and empower us by your spirit and for your glory to apply these truths to our lives so that we could be pleasing in your sight and obey you from the heart until that day when your son, our Savior, returns uh, to take his stand upon the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I looked. I look around today, and we've got a smaller, smaller crowd today than usual. So that either means that we are the the holy remnant right here, or it could be we missed the rapture. So, um, so I'm not sure where it is. It's probably somewhere in between. But, but I want to talk to you today about the Word of God. We preach from the Word of God. You know, you're never going to see me get behind the pulpit and break out the newspaper and just preach from the newspaper. I might refer to it because there might be some kind of heretical thing or some prophecy from God's word being fulfilled. But uh, why do we preach from the word of God? Well, it's because God's word is truth. The Bible is inspired by God and it is without error. Now, I have handouts because a lot of this is going to be Real fast-paced. I think I'm going to get through all of it today. Then again, I might not. might have to carry over for another Sunday. Um, but some of it's going to be so fast-paced that you're probably not going to be able to let, it to, to, to let it all sink in unless you take the notes with you. So if you don't have them now, you know, we've got everything is going to be on the PowerPoint. But make sure you pick up the notes before you leave. And you can look at this throughout the week. But some key doctrines in bibliology, bibliology just means doctrine of the Bible. And theologians, guys who study God's word, guys and gals who study God's word, they have to always come up with big words for job security purposes. And so that's why they call the doctrine of the Bible bibliology. But the first thing we need to understand, when God was going to write his word, God has to reveal his truth to the biblical authors. That's revelation. So God has to reveal his truth to the biblical authors. Before they could write it, he's got to reveal his truth um, to them. And he he could do it. He could dictate it to them. Like when Isaiah says, thus saith the Lord, that's something that God dictated to them. But more times than not, it's like the, the intellect and the diligent study of God's word by the apostle Paul or Luke's historical research into the life and ministry of Christ and the uh, events of the early church, uh, God can use 
the personality and the talents and the wisdom of the biblical authors, but God reveals his truth to them. Now, some people, so revelation is from God to man, from God, God revealing, making known his truth to man, the biblical author, okay? Some will act like, okay, yeah, God revealed his perfect truth to them, but maybe they made a mistake when they wrote it down. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration, is from the biblical author to the paper, to the scroll. Okay? So the doctrine of inspiration, and all, all these doctrines are based on biblical truths, what Christian uh, thinkers have studied God's word for 2,000 years now and have come up with these doctrines throughout the history of the church. So God revealed his truth to biblical authors, and then God guided them. He inspired them. God guided the human authors to record his word without error. We'll look at some passages that, uh, that teach that. And so the doctrine of inerrancy is that the Bible in the original manuscripts is without error. Now, what a lot of skeptics are going to say, well, what's the big deal if the Bible is without error in the originals, we don't have any of the originals. But the fact of the matter is we've got about 26,000 handwritten copies. Many of them are very, very ancient, okay? And, when, and, and they're not perfect, but when we compare them, it's called textual criticism. When you try to find out what an original manuscript said, by uh, studying and comparing the copies, okay? And when you have over 26,000 uh, copies, and if you just ignore the spelling errors or the grammatical errors that copyists may have made, because that doesn't affect translation, that doesn't affect how you're going to translate it, when you just ignore little slips of the pen, you've got 99.5% agreement among these copies, Okay, so that 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 means only five words out of every 1000 are called into question. And really, that's the difference between the New King James Version and the New American Standard Version. You know, one one holds to those extra passages that are there. The other ones question whether some of those passages should be bracketed out. Uh, but with everything said and done, when you've got that kind of agreement and that many copies, you can pretty much figure out who got it wrong, okay? And, um, and so, um, for the most part, uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible in one hand and a New King James in another hand, and they're going to agree 99.5% of the time, but one of those two will get it right on the other 0.5% of the time. And so um, textual criticism is not an exact science, but when you have that many manuscripts, that many copies, okay, and they're in, in that great of agreement, it's as close to an exact science as human wisdom can go, okay? And, uh, and so the doctrine of inerrancy is that in the originals, the Bible is written totally without error. Now, there's a problem here. If God's going to guide you and authors to record his word, God's going to want us. He's trying to reveal himself to us. He wants us to understand it. The problem is our own sinful desires get in the way. So if a husband and wife are having problems, the guy's going to look at, oh, there it is. Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. I said, oh, that's why my marriage is messed up. My wife won't submit to me. And then, uh, and then the wife will look at the passage, same passage, and say, that's why my, my marriage is messed up. My husband, husband doesn't love me as Christ loves the church. So we, we like to go into the Bible. Our own sinful desires, our own selfishness, we like to go into the Bible and find out why everybody else is messed up except me. And then if you know you're messed up, we go into the Bible to try to figure out who should we blame. Let's blame mommy and daddy. If, mommy and, if, they, if they were perfect parents, I wouldn't be this mess. Well, if you were a perfect kid, they wouldn't be a mess either. Okay? 
We still got this country, this country amazing. We got 50, 60, 70 year old guys still blaming the bad decisions they made yesterday on, on how mommy and daddy treated them 60 years ago. Okay? Get over it. You know? Forgive, pray about it. You know, I mean, I'm not minimizing the difficult, difficulties in life. Okay? We've got problems. We've got real problems. But we've got a real Savior. We've got a Savior who changes lives. We've got a Savior who heals. And, um, uh, but because, you know, James calls the law of God, the word of God, a mirror. So I, I didn't just find out about, about God by studying the word. I found out more about me. I found out more about me by reading the 66 books of the Bible than I did just by experiencing life and just trying to figure out who I am, okay? And, uh, and so we don't like that, and so the Holy Spirit has to illuminate our minds and hearts to understand God's Word. And it's not really a problem with the intellect, okay? It's a problem with the heart. It's a problem with our, our own sinful desires. So God revealed his perfect word to the biblical authors and guided them to record his word without error. He used the personalities of the authors. Paul will tend to use much harsher words than somebody like the Apostle John did. Though if John wrote a little earlier in his life when Jesus nicknamed him and his brother the Sons of Thunder, I'd hate to see the words he would have used there. But God used their personalities and their vocabulary. It wasn't like he used them as, as pens and they were just uh, uh, instruments he was using in that sense. But he used their, their mind, their thoughts, their vocabulary. But he made sure he guided the human authors to record his word totally without error. And the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and hearts to understand God's word. That's why, like, I think it's Psalm 118... No, Psalm 119, verse 18, um, that um, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. We should say a prayer like that every time we read God's word. Okay? Um, I can remember trying to do my devotions. It still happens where, you know, I'll spend 20 minutes trying to do a devotion and then realize all I was thinking about was Raider football. You know? Or... Uh, the, the, the problems of life or whatever. And uh, so pray that God enables you. Um, you know, the parable of the seeds, when the word of God is sown, um, you know, Satan can snatch that away. The trials of life could cause you uh, to just not learn God's truth or not persevere. And um, so the doctrine of illumination then there's the doctrine of preservation. I think we actually need more emphasis on this. I, you know, if God's going to go through all of his trouble to use fallible humans to record his perfect word without error, it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally get involved to make sure that he preserves accurate copies. Okay, And so the doctrine of preservation, God ensures that accurate copies of the inerrant originals remain so that when we pick up our English Bibles today, we can have full confidence that this is the Word of God. Okay, And, um, and so God is not just going to be involved in writing the Word. He's going to make sure that accurate copies get preserved throughout the centuries. Uh, now the doctrine of canonization. See, if God... The canon is the list of books that belong in the Bible. Okay? So if God... we should have, By the way, we should have full confidence that the early church got it right. The 27 books of our New Testament, they're the only ones that belong in there. Okay? We should have full confidence in that and not accept the gospel of Thomas. Nobody believes Thomas wrote it. It was written like about 160 A.D. The gospel of Judas. Why did you want a gospel written by him? Well, it wasn't really written by him. Again, another imposter. 
Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Peter. Peter didn't really write that. These were Gnostic heretical writings written more than 100 years after Jesus walked the earth. We should have full confidence that the early church got it right and that the 27 books that we have in our New Testament today are the exact 27 books that should be there. Okay? Uh, just follow the reasoning here. If God is, is going to guide human authors to record his word without error, if he's going, if he wants to reveal himself to us, he is also, through the power of the Holy Spirit, going to oversee the early church, making sure that they recognize God's word when it's written and when they receive it. Okay? And we put uh, too much emphasis um, on what I call canonization by uh, subtraction and not enough emphasis on what I call canonization by addition. If you want to read my views on that, uh, get my Hijacking the Historical Jesus book, okay? And, um, and I draw a distinction. Canonization by subtraction... About 170 A.D., some of the uh, leaders in the churches in the bigger cities that probably had all 27 books realized that some churches in the outskirts only had five or six or seven books. And then they realized every once in a while somebody would get, get up and preach a sermon from the Gospel of Thomas. And they're like, wait a minute, Thomas never wrote a gospel. And the gospel of Judas. And it's like, wait a minute, we got heretics in the church. And so the church then went through a process where we got to figure which books we need to subtract, which books we need to reject. Well, the problem was that was a 200-year process. And we immediately knew the bogus books. The early church just threw out the bogus books right away. Um, heretical Gnostic writing. They believe the Old Testament God was an evil God, so the Old Testament was evil. That was easy to throw them out, okay? Uh, the problem was they got a little overzealous, and they said, well, Book of Revelation has so many symbols in it, it sounds like one of those apocalyptic writings. Maybe we should throw the Book of Revelation out. We can't remember who wrote the Book of Hebrews. Maybe we should throw that out. We're having a hard time reconciling Paul's uh, definition of justification with James. Maybe we should throw the book of James out. And so that was a 200-year battle there. What I think we need to do is go to the earliest days, canonization by addition. What I mean there is if the Corinthian church received the letter from the Apostle Paul, okay, and so what canonization is, the Holy Spirit guided the ancient, ancient Jews of the, and the early church to recognize which books belong in the Bible, okay? Now, the early church, they like, if the Corinthians received a letter from Paul, they'd say, well, that, it's got apostolic authority. Paul, the apostle Paul, has full-blown apostolic authority. If it's written by an apostle or a colleague of an apostle, with the apostles' approval, it's got apostolic authority. And then they would have said, now Paul's not heretical, it's in agreement with previous scripture. So it's passed the first two tests. Um, but then they have to ask the Corinthians, is it edifying for the entire church? We know that Paul wrote at least three letters, maybe four, I think three letters to the Corinthian church. Okay. But one or two letters are not in our Bible. So apparently the Holy Spirit let the Corinthians know that one or two of the letters that Paul wrote to them, even though it had apostolic authority, even though it was, it was in agreement with previous scripture, it would not be edifying for the entire church. That means the entire church back then and throughout the centuries. Now, when you read First and Second Corinthians your mind can wander as to why it would not be edifying for the rest of the church. The Corinthian church was immersed in sin, okay? If Paul named names and went into details, you know, the, in one of those letters, the Corinthians would have said, okay, get everybody in on Sunday, 
We'll read the letter to everybody on Sunday, and we're either going to hide or burn this cop, this this letter. We're not making copies of it. This would not be airing our dirty laundry to this extent would not be edifying for the rest of the church. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul was wrong for writing that extra letter. It just means that extra letter was written just for them specifically. Whereas what we call today First and Second Corinthians, that's written for the church for all generations. The Corinthians would have seen that and say, we not only need to preach it from our pulpit, we need to make copies so other churches can read it alongside the Old Testament scriptures. And so real early on, the Gospels began to be collected and Paul's letters began to be corrected. And so the three tests for canonization, does it have apostolic authority? Was it written by an apostle or one of his colleagues with the apostle's approval? Like Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was a colleague of Paul, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Did it have apostolic authority? Was it in agreement with previous scripture? I mean, God's not going to contradict himself. All the Gnostic writings were heretical. Salvation through secret knowledge. Uh, Jesus is just one of many intermediaries between God and, and man. And uh, Jesus only pretended to be human, wasn't really human. The Old Testament God is an evil God. There's no reason why they should accept that. And then, was it edifying for the entire church? By the way, I will say this. Go to, go to your table of contents in the Bible. If you have your Bible there, just go to the table of contents. And when you look at the New Testament, now with the Old Testament, it would, the, the test would be, does it have prophetic authority? Okay? And God lets you know who the prophet was. I mean, with Moses, when he started writing the first five books of the Bible, there was the, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. So it was kind of pretty obvious, manna from heaven. It was pretty obvious, water from the rock. It was pretty obvious, okay, this is God's stamp of approval on Moses. He's God's prophet. Just in case you question that, like the sons of Korah, and you rebel against them, the earth swallows you up. Okay, there's another hint that Moses is probably God's guy, okay? Then after he writes the first five books of the Bible, he passes the baton to Joshua, and then from there it goes on to like people like Samuel the prophet, and Nathan the prophet, and uh, Jeremiah the prophet and Isaiah, okay? And uh, so you had that prophetic authority, and the New Testament was apostolic authority. But if you look at the 27 New Testament books, I think Matthew wrote his gospel. I agree with the early church. I don't agree with the scholars today. That's why I'm not a real, well, I can't say it. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a real popular guy in the apologetics world is because I go against so much of current scholarship. I think we're too influenced by evolutionary thinking, even in our seminaries. But I, I think the early church fathers are right. Matthew wrote first and wrote very early. Well, he would have written early enough for Peter to be the head of the Jerusalem church. So Matthew, who was an apostle, probably wrote under Peter's authority. The early church fathers told us, tell us that Mark got the information uh, for his gospel from Peter when he was Peter's scribe in Rome. Luke would have, would have gotten his authority from his, his colleague, the Apostle Paul, his mentor. John's the Apostle John. He got it from himself. He was, he was the, you know, Paul said that Peter, James, and John, James, the half-brother of Jesus, were the three pillars of the Jerusalem church. And then Paul was the Apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Luke wrote Luke, and he wrote Acts. Um, then you got Paul's letters... From Romans to Philemon, uh, some believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews said he never met Jesus. That um, people who met Jesus preached to him and God accompanied with signs and wonders. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But I think it was one of Paul's colleagues. The guy knew Timothy, may have been Apollos. So that's under Paul's authority. James would have written under his own authority. Peter would have written, for, would, have, would have wrote first or second Peter under his authority, John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation under his authority. Jude, another half-brother of Jesus, probably wrote under James's authority. So basically what I'm saying, all 27 books come, go, can be traced back to the authority of the big four. The Apostle Paul, 
who said, I didn't get my apostleship. Let's read Galatians 1.1. I didn't get my apostleship from man. I got it from God, directly from Jesus Christ, on the road to the Damascus. And uh, so Paul is his authority, but then he refers to Peter, James, and John as the three pillars of the Jerusalem church. And every New Testament book is under the authority of those four. Why in the world would I even entertain the possibility of the Gospel of Thomas? And everybody asks, oh, it was a big political thing. Yeah, like Peter and Paul were rich. It was a big political thing that we kept out, um, kept out these other books. No, these books were written way later. They were heretical. And you can't have apostolic authority if the apostles aren't still alive. Okay? And so I think we need to focus on canonization by addition and realize if God's going to go through all the trouble of guiding human authors to record his word without error, then the Holy Spirit's going to also get involved so that the early church recognizes which books are, are his word. So don't let anybody ever confuse you about extra books that should be added to the Bible. I mean, the early church and the ancient Jews had great respect for the book of Enoch, but they never considered it God's word, okay? But I think some of it, portions of it, can trace all the way back to Enoch and then probably good traditions from uh, Noah and his sons when they came off the ark. So you can get a lot of good information there, but test it with the word of God. This alone is the word of God, these 66 books. Uh, and then I would add uh, anointing, that the Holy Spirit fills and empowers his people to preach his word. Um, that's why we pray so much, that God anoints us to preach his word when we get behind this pulpit. But it's my hope and my prayer that everybody here preaches God's word. You don't have to have a pulpit to preach. Okay? You don't even have to have a Bible with you to preach as long as you got the Bible in your mind and you're proclaiming God's truth and sharing it with others. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, this is right after being, being persecuted, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled, the apostles, together uh, was, where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What was the outcome of being filled with the Holy Spirit? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Okay? You see, if you're a believer, if you've trusted, if you've acknowledged, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. I cannot earn my way to heaven. Therefore, I'm going to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. He died on the cross for my sins, rose from the dead to conquer death for me. I'm going to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. If you did that, you're saved. Okay? And the Holy Spirit indwells you. But you might not be filled. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you get more of Him. When you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you get as much of Him as you can possibly get. Okay? Being filled with the Holy Spirit means He gets more of you. Amen. So, it's like if you're driving in a car down the road and the Holy Spirit's in the passenger side seat, that's like being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're in the passenger side seat and he's doing the driving. Okay? So we pray when we preach God's word, not just me behind this pulpit or John or Pat or Willis behind this pulpit, but even you when you're sharing the word of God on the work site. We pray that God anoints you fills you with his spirit to proclaim his truth. Um, it's not a thing, too. It's like, you know, um, if somebody said, wow, that, that's a, that guy's a, an anointed preacher, okay? Rightly understood, the way I'm using the word anointed, that's not even a compliment to the guy. That's like saying... That guy is a bit spiritually a bag of worms apart from Christ. And so without the anointing of the Holy Spirit, his words would be worthless. So we're glad that the perfect Holy Spirit anointed this, unper this imperfect guy 
to preach God's word. Okay? And so we if we put the preacher, you know, some people might come here and might visit the church and say, they always pray that God anoints the preacher to preach the word. They pray about three or four times and stuff like that. Uh, what do they think? Their preacher is special? No. We do that because the preacher isn't special. Why do we pray three times? Because we don't have enough time to preach four times. But everybody knows when I go walking up those steps to get behind this pulpit, or John or Pat or Willis, whoever's preaching, we know it's a fallible man. There isn't a person on this planet, with, a, with the, you know, the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth, other than the Lord Jesus, there isn't a person on this planet who hasn't led somebody astray at some one time or another. And so if we're going to be serious, if this really is the word of God, we got to preach God's word with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who wrote this collection of books. Okay? It's like this guy, this psychologist who now believes that God exists, but he's not a Christian yet. I'm hoping and praying for him. But he's reading C.S. Lewis books. He's from Canada. Uh, Jordan Peterson. But he's opening his mind to the possibility that maybe he's, he believes the Bible. He's against people who want to outlaw Christianity because he believes the Bible is a book filled with... He's a Jungian psychologist. believes the Bible is a book filled with myths. But they're the best, best myths a man ever wrote. So they do teach eternal truths, and based on those eternal truths, we've ended up with the most prosperous, most powerful, most free country on earth. So he says, no, don't outlaw Christianity. Without the Bible, he says, you, you reject the Bible, you end up with the gulags and the concentration camps. Okay? At the same time, he still thinks these are myths. But now people are talking to him, and he's wondering, maybe C.S. Lewis is right, and in Christianity, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man, dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, maybe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the myth has intersected with history. And then Jordan Peterson starts weeping and says, that it's too much for me to accept. It's just, it's just too much. I, I, how could that be? And then what does he do? He starts talking about Christians that he knows that don't view the world any differently than non-Christians. And they, it's, just like, it's like if we keep going around saying Jesus is Lord and the Bible is God's word and it's no big deal, then why would we we'd be surprised that nobody is attracted to our preaching? Okay? And that's why I hope he reads what C.S. Lewis said, the strongest case, strongest evidence for Christianity is Christians. The strongest case against Christianity is Christians. It just depends on what Christians you're talking to. Apparently, Jordan Peterson's bumping into the wrong ones. Sad thing is, there's more of them than there are of us, assuming we act like the Jesus encounter changes everything. And at least Jordan Peterson understands that. That if he commits to the Lord Jesus and trusts in him for salvation, that will change everything in his life. We act like Jesus is a backpack. We put him on when it's convenient, and we can take him off when it's convenient. And, um, but this, we, when we read the word of God, we ought to say, wow, this is God speaking to us. You know, I was asked once, how come, how come sometimes I cry? But Kurt Rainier, our old buddy, He's now in Texas. He left us for, for a free state. But um, uh, he asked me, how come you, this is real early in his walk, how come do you cry sometimes when you preach? When you preach God's word? And my response to him was, you know, what I don't understand is how come I don't cry all the time when I preach God's word? I said, all I could figure is um, um, every once in a while I'm preaching God's word and all of a sudden it dawns on me Here's Joe and Angie's little boy who grew up in Essex County, New Jersey. You know, I mean, I was the definition of a loser. 
And then the Lord Jesus saved me, and now I'm preaching God's truth to people? God can use me. He can use anybody. But, it, but this is God's truth. And, um, and so I think, I think it's, it's kind of puzzling that we can read God's word and not weep. It doesn't sink, sink in. We read it like we're reading just some novel or something. But, uh, but whatever the case, um, God revealed his word to the biblical authors and then he inspired them. He guided them to record his word totally without error. And then the Holy Spirit needs to enlighten our minds and hearts to understand God's word. God ensured that we would have accurate copies so that the word of God, you know, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They didn't have video and audio recording back then. That meant his words were going to be recorded throughout the ages. And then the Holy Spirit guided the, the ancient Jews in the Old Testament, and the early church in the New Testament, who were ancient Jews as well, by the way, to recognize which books belonged in the Bible. And then the Holy Spirit fills and empowers his people to proclaim his perfect truth. Okay, so now let's take a closer look at inspiration. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And Paul says this, all scripture. Now he's not saying some scripture. He's not saying just the scriptures that you like are inspired by God. He's saying all scripture is inspired by God. We have professors, some of whom are my friends, training the next generation of preachers, and they preach at evangelical schools, supposedly schools that teach that the Bible is God's word without error, yet they pick and choose which books, we, which passages we should take literally, which miracles we should really believe occurred, okay? We've got probably the leading defender of the Christian faith on earth today now just came out with a book that he believes that God used evolution. Adam, God didn't form Adam from the, the ground. Adam revolved from pre-human uh, ape types. Eve wasn't even related to Adam. God didn't produce her from uh, Adam's side. Instead, she was from an evolved ape. And um, technically, she really wouldn't be human since all humans have to be able to trace their ancestry to Adam. Adam's name, it's what it means, is man. And uh, so, uh, so Paul says, all scripture. Well, I don't know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they really bother me. They don't coincide with modern scientific theory. No, no, all scripture, even the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Well, book of Revelation is kind of weird and scares me, and, and it's not all scripture. Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That literally means in the Greek, it's God breathed. It's as if God breathed the words out and onto the paper. And in scripture, by the way, um, scribes are scribes because they scribble. Not because they, they uh, recite things. Okay. So all scripture, all the holy writings are given by the inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine. That's for teaching, for reproof, for correction. So for correcting heresies, but also correcting sinful behavior, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay? So you don't need to add extra books to the Bible. You need to test any non-biblical books with the Bible to see what the Bible says there. But God guided human authors to record his written word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let's look at what Peter says about the inspiration of scriptures. Second Peter chapter 1. 
Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misinterpret this passage when it talks about private interpretation. Everybody has to interpret what is said. If I say, hi, how are you doing? You have to interpret that before you can respond. Okay? Uh, but what it's talking about there is no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The context is saying, when you look at the context of this passage, no prophecy of Scripture. Prophecy just means, uh, it doesn't have to predict the future, it just means it's the Word of God being proclaimed. So no prophecy of Scripture... And Paul tells us all Scripture is prophecy because all Scripture is God-breathed, is inspired by God. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the private interpretation of reality by the biblical authors. So what he's saying is, when you pick up the Bible, you are not picking up the writings of Plato or Aristotle. Plato taught a lot of truth. Aristotle taught a lot of truth. They taught a whole lot of errors, too. It was their own private interpretation. Being created in God's image, they accidentally stumbled over the truth once in a while. But with the biblical authors, it's not their private interpretation of reality. It is God's truth about reality. And so Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God, they were set apart by God for this purpose, but holy men of God spoke as they were what? Moved by the Holy Spirit. As they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that's saying the same thing as, as, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So rather than their faulty interpretation of reality, it's God's truth. God's true knowledge of uh, reality. So that's the doctrine of inspiration that God guided human authors to record his written word. And so all scripture is inspired by God. Theopneustos, uh, God breathed, the word in the Greek. All scripture, not just some, but all scripture. And this means, by the way, the Old Testament which was already completed long, 400 years before Paul wrote that, but also any New Testaments that were written before Paul wrote that and any New Testament books that Paul was writing after that. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 5.18. 1 Timothy 5.18. Now, Paul's writing 1 Timothy probably in the early 60s AD and he says this for scripture says he, he's talking about um, um, elders the, the pastors of the churches should be compensated for their, their preaching and he says in verse 18 for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain you know why put a muzzle on an ox when, it's, when you want the ox to eat and get stronger and all. And so don't muzzle the ox. Uh, take care of the preacher so the preacher has time to study the word of God and preach. And so Paul says, For scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Guess what? There's only one place in the Bible where it says the laborer is worthy of his wages, and uh, that's Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So Paul is calling Luke's gospel scripture as early as the early 60s A.D. See, that's canonization by addition. Paul knew. And Luke was under Paul's authority. What does that say about Paul's writings? But Paul knew uh, and taught that 
uh, the Gospel of Luke was Scripture. Okay? So if all Scripture is inspired by God, that means even the Gospel of Luke. Look at what Peter said in 2 Peter. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved Paul, according to his wisdom, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Okay? And, uh, and then he, verse 16, as also in all his epistles, in all of Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Don't, that's why you should not have untaught and unstable people preaching God's word. Whoever gets behind a pulpit better be well-schooled and, and well-taught in God's word. Now, I don't care if they have a piece of paper on the wall. Especially nowadays, when you can go on the internet and if you find the right sources, there's a lot of bad, a lot of fake news out there, but you find the right sources you can get pretty much the same education a guy can get from the seminary. It's, it's harder, I'll be honest with you, because you don't have professors looking over your shoulders and grading your papers. So some, some guys are informally trained. They're getting C, doing C-plus work. If they had a professor grading their papers, they might be doing A-plus work. But all I care about is the, the guy who gets behind that pulpit, he better be grounded in God's Word. Now, how he got grounded in God's Word... That's between him and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And, um, but he says that there, there are people who untaught and unstable who twist Paul's difficult teachings, okay, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So what does that tell you? It tells you that Peter, while Peter and Paul were still alive, Peter already acknowledged that, that Paul's letters were scripture. Paul acknowledged that Luke's gospel was scripture. And so you have books being added to the canon. The gospels were gathered first, and then with the book of Acts, and then Paul's letters. Okay? And um, so you could go to the Apostolic Fathers, pupils of the apostles selected by the apostles to lead in the early church, uh, Ignatius, and Polycarp, who were writing around 107 A.D. when Ignatius was fed to wild beasts, and Clement to Rome, I think he was writing about 70 A.D., most of it dated about 95 A.D., but he says the temple's still standing when he wrote, so I'm not going to call him a liar. Uh, but by 107 A.D., just those three guys alone, quote from or allude to 23 out of the 27 New Testament books as being authoritative scripture. Now, don't get all bent out of shape that they didn't quote from four. It wasn't their goal to say, hey, let's make sure we quote all 27 books. They just happened to do that in passing. Okay? And, uh, and so basically what I'm saying is, uh, by about 100 AD, any pastor uh, of churches in uh, the bigger cities that had access to all the books, they know exactly which, which 27 books belonged in the Bible. The confusion occurred after Polycarp died, 156 AD, the last of the apostolic fathers to die. He was a teenager who studied under an elderly apostle John. Once the last of the pupils of the apostles died, then guys could start writing bogus, heretics could write bogus books. While the apostolic fathers were still alive, you could say... Um, uh, start teaching bogus stuff. And the apostolic father said, wait a minute, I was trained by the apostle John, and he was trained by Jesus. And Jesus never taught that. Remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials? How many people are as old as me? Good, two of you. Very good. I'm feeling good about myself right, right now. That's, uh, 
So two years old as me, and the other, about half of the church are lying. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but there used to be those commercials that some guy said, well, my broker says such and such. He's at a restaurant, all these guys with suits. You know, the restaurants I can't afford to go to, all these guys wearing suits. And my broker says this. And the other guy says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then everybody goes like this, okay? Well, the apostle, I'm talking, we're not talking E.F. Hutton. We're talking Jesus. And so when the apostolic fathers would hear some weird teaching, they'd be like, whoa, I was trained by John, and he was trained by Jesus, and Jesus, and then everybody goes like this, and Jesus never taught that. That contradicts what Jesus was teaching. So don't let people fool you about the Gnostic Gospels and all that garbage. There's people on the Internet right now that have been defending the faith and preaching Jesus who are now jumping on the bandwagon with these Gnostic heretical Gospels. And it really, really saddens uh, my heart. Um, but once the Apostolic Fathers died, then you could say, well, here's the secret writings the secret teachings of Jesus has given to, to, to Thomas. And I don't, know, I don't know why women's livers, like Elaine Pagels out of Princeton, likes the Gospel of Thomas. Because in there, there's one passage where Jesus says that if a woman wants to go to heaven, she has to first become a man. Uh, I don't think that'd be real good for the women's rights movement. Um, um, a lot of flaky stuff, by the way. If you read the Gnostic Gospels, it's pretty obvious... Uh, God's, this is not God's word, okay? And, uh, and so the doctrine of inspiration, it's all scripture is inspired by God. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Once the last of the apostles died, there's no more. The, the canon is closed. So for the rest of the history of the church, we test everything with this. I hope when people read my books that they have a Bible nearby and test what I'm teaching with the Bible. And so, and then the, the doctrine of inerrancy, God guided his human authors to record his, word, his written word without error. So the Bible is totally true in all that it teaches. It is totally without errors in the original manuscripts. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 30, or Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 30. 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. I'm sorry, Joseph Smith, but adding the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, the Mormons adding the Journal of Discourses, bad idea. Bad idea. You're just proving yourselves to be liars. Every word of God is pure. You know, I, I picked up one translation once that said, every word of God is tested. Like, wait, I thought it was pure. It's tested? And then another translation, every word of God is flawless. I'm like, is it pure? Is it flawless? Is it tested? Uh, let me tell you, the Greek, the, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is very poetic. It paints a portrait with words. It's so poetic. So um, this same word... In the Hebrew, is there when um, David didn't want to wear Saul's armor when he fought Goliath because it wasn't tested. In other words, I didn't practice with it and prove that it's going to help me. It might get in the way and hurt me. So I'm not going to wear it. It's not tested. And so you could translate, if you want to bring out the richness of the Hebrew... Uh, you could translate that every word of God has been tested and has passed that test and proven itself to be totally pure and absolutely flawless. Now, why can't Hebrew scholars do that? Because if you're doing that with every Hebrew word, instead of the Bible being this thick, it'd be like, it'd be like this thick. And we'd, we'd lose track of what's being said. Because, you know, it takes us 20 minutes to read one sentence, okay? But I'm telling you, why don't I pick up other books and just think, man, this is, this is totally true, totally without error? 
and I could just totally trust this other book outside of us because it hasn't been tested. But the 66 books of the Bible have been tested. You know, America was an experiment with the 66 books of the Bible. We tested it. It took a long time to get consistent with it. I mean, we had some horrible sins in our past. And what did it produce? You get a nation who builds its culture on the word of God. You get the most powerful, most prosperous, and healthiest nation on the planet Earth. And guess what? We're throwing that all away now. Okay? Um, but every word of God is flawless. Look at Psalm 119. You want to learn about the Bible, read Psalm 119. Just keep in mind it's like 176 verses long. Psalm 119, 142, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. See, they call the Bible God's word, God's law, God's precepts, God's statutes, okay? And he's saying that God's law is truth. Um, verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Okay? Um, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Okay? So throughout the Bible, it says that God's word is truth. Um, let's look at a, a couple more verses here. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 29. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 29. And this is when God was rejecting King Saul as king over Israel. And Samuel the prophet says to him, And also the strength of Israel, that's God, that's Yahweh, and also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent. He will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should relent. God does not lie. If the 66 books of the Bible are God's word, they automatically are true. Okay? God does not lie. I mean, you look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God is not even capable of lying. Okay? God is truth. As the source of all truth, he is truth, and he can only proclaim the truth. So if the Bible is the word of God, by definition, it has to be true. So this means the Bible is true in whatever it teaches. The Bible is true in whatever it teaches, whether it's spiritual things or moral things or historical or scientific Whatever the Bible talks about, it speaks truly about those things. And we have accurate copies of the inerrant originals. And so the Bible is true in whatever it teaches. Because of this, Christians should not transform historical narratives, historical accounts in the Bibles of miraculous events into mere figures of speech. You know, I have a friend who says that when Jesus died on the cross uh, and the saints were raised, uh, Christians who had died just a few days before rose from the dead and, and showed themselves alive in Jerusalem, they said, well, that, no, that's just, a, that's kind of a special effects. And there's a metaphors, it's figurative language. That really didn't happen. Let me, say, let me tell you, if you can do it with that miracle, you could do it with the resurrection and the virgin birth, too. So, homie, don't do that. I'm not going down that path, all right? And none of us should go down that path. If the Bible is speaking figuratively, it will let us know. 
And he spoke to the people in parables. The sower went out to sow. It's like, okay, it's a parable. Okay? Uh, a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And then the book of Revelation itself, just study it, tells you the dragon is Satan. Okay? And uh, uh, the seven heads are the seven hills uh, of a city upon which the woman, this end-time false religion, sits. And uh, the ten horns are ten kings of ten kingdoms who will rule over the world in the last days and give their authority to the Antichrist, to the beast. The symbolism is explained there. Okay? Um, we've, got, we've got people now that turn the creation and flood account into ancient mythology. They call it the Biologos movement. Okay? That was headed up by Francis Collins, the same guy who gave us so, so much inaccurate information. Head of the NIH gave us so much inaccurate information about, about COVID. Him and his buddy, Anthony Fauci. And, um, but, um, um, but whatever the case, they want, they want to tell us that, no, evolution is true. So, uh, no, we got to resist that. Don't turn the Genesis... Uh, creation and flood accounts into ancient mythology. God did not use evolution. Uh, I, I'm actually, I'm a young earth creation. I believe God created the universe in six literal days and create, on the sixth day created man from the, from the ground, breathed life into his nostrils, and then formed Eve from his side. Okay? Uh, now when you do find metaphors, parables, allegories in the scriptures... You know, a parable is a true-to-life story that teaches spiritual truth. The sower went out to sow. Well, farmers do sow seed. An allegory, it's a story not true-to-life that teaches spiritual truth. Like when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Well, Jesus isn't really a vine. We're not really branches. But look for the spiritual truth there. So we should look for the actual meaning behind figures of speech, but we must not turn literal passages into symbolic ones just because that's the politically correct thing to do. Okay? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up there next time, but we're going to talk about what Jesus taught about the Old Testament and how he promised us a New Testament. Okay? And then we're going to give some reasons why we should have confidence, complete confidence, that the Bible is God's word. You know, Jesus told us in John 17, 17, and in John 10, 35, that thy word is truth. God's word is truth, and the scripture cannot be broken. Okay? There's people who tell me, so you know, Fernandez, all religions lead to God. No. The scriptures cannot be broken. And in the scriptures, King Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father, but through me. Paul said, let God be true, and every man a liar. If that's not your attitude, um, you need to come to Jesus moment. Okay? The 66 books of the Bible, this is the perfect word of God. And we must believe it, and obey it, uh, no matter what the world tells us. No matter what the world says. So with Joshua, we got to say, you know, everybody else can make their choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and as Francis Schaefer, he's the God who is there. But he is there and he is not silent. God has spoken to us in his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we... We love you, Lord, and we love your word. And so many people say they, they love you, but they don't love your word. And it's not possible uh, to love you and not love your word. So I pray, Lord, you would help us to love your word and to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus' teachings and the rest of the Bible. And as our culture gets more and more uh, anti-Christian, may we get stronger in our confidence that your word, the 66 books of the Bible, are your word completely without error, and everything else must be trusted by the Bible. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would submit our lives 
to you, to your son and your spirit, and that we would submit our lives to your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.